You're listening to Cinepunk to interactive discussions for film lovers. This episode, La Jetée. So what we're going to do, it, this is rather unusual, it's just me and Rachel uh, this week. So Hello. So Dr. Richard Kelly and Robert J. Simpson uh, sitting here. And we thought what we'd talk to you about today is uh, La Jetée, the 1962 uh, sort of short film from French filmmaker Chris Marker. Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen La Jette, um, calling it a short film kind of doesn't really do it justice. For one thing, there's virtually no moving image in it whatsoever, which for me is part of the magic of the movie. Um, because after the initial kind of shock of, gosh, this is just a series of still images, um, you don't notice anymore. And in fact, the power of it in a lot of ways kind of derives from the fact that it sucks you in through this montage of still images um, into this kind of dystopian vision of the future um, and then back to this idealized 1960s Paris um, where our hero uh, sort of starts this amazing cross-time love story. Yeah, I, I guess people are going to be a little bit uh, if if you don't think you know this film, uh, it's it's probably best known as being the inspiration for Terry Gilliam's film Twelve Monkeys, and later on the four season Sci Fi Channel television series of the same name. Um, so it does have a, a kind of a really important place within sort of our modern cinema history. That's incredibly influential, yes. Even the uh, films that are not directly influenced from it draw plenty of inspiration from it. I mean, Terry Gilliam in particular, I think um, you can see shades of this film throughout most of his science fiction output. Uh, 12 Monkeys is the one that's directly based on it, but this film's been cropping up in reimaginings of the future. Gosh, really? I mean... Forever, really? Yeah, it, it's a sort of a strange one. So, uh, basically... Uh, so... I don't know, the first time you see La Jette, Robert, what did you think about the first time you saw it? It's kind of one of those films that you can't really be prepared for, isn't it? I, I had a strange thing. I caught this in my first year as an undergrad film student, and I happened to have seen 12 Monkeys literally about four days before I saw this. So being a Terry Gilliam fan anyway, um, 12 Monkeys was very fresh in my mind. I love what it was doing, but I kind of sat down and I watched this in class. And we got through, and this is point not that far into it where I suddenly realised... I'm watching Twelve Monkeys. This this isn't this is something I know. So ultimately, I know what's going to happen at the end of the film. But nevertheless, it it still kind of captured me. Um, I think for me, uh, what's really special about this is is that our perception is that film should be something that's driven by moving image the whole way through, and that is the way that we are now. Film is essentially you know, the the line that I always remember is film is truth twenty four times a second. Basically, cinema works by presenting us with a series of still images that are go through a progression as we see them each one taken slightly after the next one we then perceive that as movement and as reality this sort of strips that back this ends up uh, presenting us with a series of still images hundreds and hundreds of them but they're held on screen for quite a while so that sense of movement is pretty much lost but nevertheless there's still a story that's being told and it yeah, you said the sense of movement's pretty much lost. I mean, I, I agree with you, but only in the sense of what's actually happening on screen. Yeah. Because what happens when you're watching it is that you forget that you're watching a series of still images. Um, and in fact, the, the editing's so clever that in places it makes it look as though still images are moving so that when you get to that tiny little snippet, and I'm not, not any spoilers because you've got to watch this and see if it's as startling to you as it was to me the first time I saw it. When you get to that tiny little snippet of moving images, it's 
almost it's it's unnerving it's unsettling it's you you wonder did I actually see that have I have I just imagined movement happening and if so what does that tell me about me and um it, it's it's actually kind of creepy mm-hmm. because it disrupts the experience of watching a series of stills up to that point um I mean yeah I guess it's very much in keeping with what uh director Chris Marker in fact what what all of that kind of French new wave movement although he's not really really part of the French new wave movement he's on the outskirts of it I suppose it's really what they're trying to do though isn't it they're trying to disrupt that film Mm. experience they're trying to disrupt that safety of the film experience where you feel like you know what's happening and you know we you're you're so innately attuned to the conventions of what happens in film that it's a really safe, passive viewing experience. And they're going, no, no, it shouldn't be this easy. It should be challenging. We're not going to hold you by the hand. We're going to lead you off a completely different, off a cliff here. And you can either join us or not, but you are going to acknowledge the fact that that um, film has become safer than it really should be. Well, I think in terms of language, I mean, obviously, if you take Hollywood cinema as the driving force, which ultimately we always end up doing because it's the, the the most popular mainstream cinema it's dominant it's globally dominant i mean there's only a couple of global or uh, world cinemas that can even come close to challenging hollywood's dominance so with the, with the french new wave um and that movement at the, sort of the, in the 50s and into the 60s there is a sense that actually what we have lost is a lot of what film was actually about film has become better or for worse is essentially become film theater oh but it always was well it, I mean, I, I think trying to, with this idea that we even have a film as as an art form uh, that should be anything other than entertainment is something that comes basically directly from the the French New Wave. Um, mm. Without them, there it would film was was an entertainment medium from it was a, a scientific curiosity when it was discovered and it was very much pushed as a as an entertainment medium. I think for me, the idea that film has to be anything other than that is quite annoying, really, and it leads to, to, the, to stuff so- that. Well, absolutely, it doesn't have to be anything other than entertainment. Essentially, you know, in terms of cinema, they're wanting bums on seats because they want to sell tickets. Yeah, and it's they... a commercial industry that happens to have artistic concerns as well. I don't necessarily know that we're looking at it's sort of uh, it's sort of art versus entertainment, but I think what you've got is that what makes the question comes about is what actually makes cinema different from something else what is it that is uniquely cinematic compared to something else mm, and it's when yeah. you start doing things like disrupting the way that, that the sequence is played out so Goddard does it uh, when he starts removing soundtrack randomly from bits of films so you hear bits of conversation or he starts panning away from the people that you're listening to so we suddenly take into some some yeah. sort of other detail this isn't what's supposed to happen this is where spo- well, there are we- there are ways that this is supposed to play out it's not happening the way it's played out and suddenly you're aware you're watching a film again mm-hmm. rather than sort of passive consumption of entertainment and, and, that, and that's great and essentially this sort of does something a little bit similar in, in the, that it's taking us out of that normal conventions but it also presents us with something that is i mean it's actually quite a you know it's gonna be read as a very straight science fiction story oh, yeah absolutely it's, it's routinely voted one of the best science fiction films of of all time and i think it's absolutely valid to to call it a straight science fiction film as well and in fact if you're looking at the science fiction, there's nothing particularly novel about this idea of a time loop. Um, no. And uh, without giving any spoilers, I mean, I think it's fairly clear for, very early on. This is all about playing with, with time and the perception of time and, and the passage of time. Um, what it does is it it turns that into a fairly unique filmmaking exp- or film viewing experience a filmmaking experience but film viewing experience as mm. well so f- that the, you know while it's in- 
you know, it's incredibly enjoyable, um, or at least I find it incredibly enjoyable to watch it as a science fiction film. Um, you, the, the true heart of it, I think, is is so many different layers down. Well, you think you said to me earlier on that uh, before recording that you know essentially you could read this and it's, it's a, you know the story beats are all there in traditional sort of Certainly narrative are, yeah. cinema. I I kind of see that there's something else going on with its with its sort of cyclical nature of the narrative because essentially we open and close with the same image. And um, we have a story that that falls in on itself, um, you know, without spoiling what actually happens uh, for people. You know, we 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 open with a with a traumatic vision that we will return to, um, and actually is repeated sort of throughout the film as well. Yeah, but it's by no means the only film to close no, it's on not. the same fil- image that it opens with. You know, uh, in fact, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, it's kind of echoing these um, sort of mainstream Hollywood directors that um, that the new wave were so invested in kind of uh, lionizing mm-hmm. and and insisting on their their artistic merit um, you know genre directors in a lot of cases people that um, were, were you know fairly commercially successful but nobody was arguing apart from the Hollywood new wave that these guys were great artists you know the likes of Alfred Hitchcock the mm-hmm. likes of uh, John Ford um, it's certainly not unusual. I mean, I'm thinking of a very, really classic John Ford film, The Searchers, which mm. which starts and ends on that absolutely stunningly beautiful um, door opening and closing, invested with enormous um, significance, um, both on a narrative level mm-hmm. and a deeper symbolic level. Now, you know, the rest of the film has not aged well, ideologically speaking, but um, this is this is very much absolutely something you would expect to see referenced in this kind of reverential style mm. by these guys who are really invested in the idea of promoting um the notion of film as art mm. i mean this is a film that's obsessed with the idea of memory and trauma yeah um this is a film that is so bogged down with with perception and image an image well, yeah which is why i find the decision to to shoot it in a series of still images uh, the, the reverence of the image it's the reverence of this this idea of an image captured in time mm. um it's not the first time that marker would do it. it's not the last time that marker would choose to shoot a film like this either um and it's something that you know he, he's regarded uh, he regards these things as as, as uh, sort of uh, photo romance they're, they're they're basically photo essays um photo novels um, these are telling a you know a story in a particular kind of way, and he is regarded as a film essayist mm-hmm. rather than a filmmaker by by some of the critics. Um, was I reading somewhere that he's the only true sort of film essayist? I know, but they say that about <laughs> all of them, don't they? Yeah. Um, he he is playing about with this idea about perception uh, in, in a very very real sense, and this is something. I mean, we talked about this I think on the show before, and we will keep on coming back to it because it is so powerful. But I think it's something that's specifically cinematic, um, that idea about how we remember and what we see, yes. and how what we see can influence how we perceive something. Yeah, and the unreliability of of human memory, and the fact that sometimes all it takes is a bit of contextualizing information for us to see it in a completely different way. Mm. I mean, film plays with that all the time. Film is is kind of uniquely placed to play with that because it we can only judge what it presents to us through the, the, the director and the production team's choice of to what to put in front of us at any given moment. So deliberately withholding information by choosing to point the camera in one direction rather than another direction, mm-hmm. um, we can only access what they want us to have at that particular moment. But it is the same in a lot of ways when it comes to human memory. I mean, we have we, we access reality um, via our own set of, of predetermined cues that we use to interpret things so we can only look at something with the information that we have at that particular moment um, and then using 
new contextualizing information down the line completely reframes it. Mm. Um, I mean, human memory is notoriously unreliable anyway. You know, the we, 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 we do cheat with it. I mean, a great example of how we kind of re-manipulate a sequence that we've seen on screen is the likes of Hitchcock's uh, cycle and the short scene within that where people think that they see the knife penetrating the body, which they don't. It's all done in the cut. Um, and, and literally the cut, mm-hmm. the way the film is cut, and that gives us this idea because our brain is constantly trying to make sense of the stuff that we see that we don't completely understand. We have to give it a context sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's that juxtaposition of images that will, will create a meaning for us as well, which this film is very, very good at doing. Talking of Hitchcock and the juxtaposition of images. <laughs> we couldn't <laughs> talk, talk about, about Vertigo. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't talk about this film without talking about Vertigo. I mean, it, it, it overtly references Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock, of course, is one of the directors that these guys are obsessed with to the point that, you know, there, there's um, sequences in, in French New Wave films that are basically shot for shot. Um, imitations of of Hitchcock sequences mm. I mean they love them some Hitchcock uh, but this one in particular it's it really I mean it benefits from from having it it's the, the comparison they made explicit with vertigo I mean they're both very much concerned with ideas of of images and perfect images and the disruption of perfect images mm-hmm. um and the the sort of the unknowable woman um and and madness and and all sorts but but specifically um when they're looking at the the image of the tree or that the, the tree stump in la jete it's a direct reference to that sequence in vertigo mm-hmm. It's, it's it's a a lovely uh, there's a number of lovely homages to this. Um, there was a a little video I found online that kind of rolled uh, those parallels out quite nicely with the the actual visual cues. And there is something about this that you've got a guy who's similarly you've got a guy who's obsessed with girl. Not that that's anything new in the world. There are always plenty of those. Um, but as you say, this idealized image to the point where he allows this idealization of a sequence, this almost fetishization yes. of a moment yes. to influence everything else that he does to the point where he doesn't see the bigger picture. He doesn't see mm-hmm. what's actually going on. And he misinterprets. Yes. Essentially, this is a film about misinterpretation. Um, Vertigo is a film that is about misinterpretation. Yeah. And cinema essentially is about misinterpretation yeah. with the exception of documentary uh, even documentary though i mean the idea that documentary is somehow more true is an invention of cinema well with, with i was going to say with, with the exception of documentary where there's more of a case for being supposedly based on, on a sort of a representation of reality uh, fiction films essentially are trying to create worlds uh, and, and uh, persuade us to be completely convinced that the stuff that is being played out, the, these parts that are being played by other people who are not the people that they, they are supposed to be, that are playing characters, that are dressed in costumes, um, and ignoring the fact that there is a hound, you know, there's a whole room full of hundreds and hundreds of, of, of filmmakers behind this, um, that this world is actually a real thing when it's often just the corner of a studio somewhere in the middle of Burbank. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why you have such... Um but that's why the French New Wave exists for a start, is to kind of challenge this idea of the the artificiality of it. But then, I mean, it, it's all a question. I mean, you know, look at lo- what Lars von Trier is trying to do with Dogville mm. to to basically say it doesn't matter if you try and make it look like a real place. It's all artificial, so we might as well just shoot this on a blank soundstage <laughs> with with markings on the floor now. I am very impatient with that kind of <laughs> cinematic self-aggrandizement, aren't I? So very, very clever. But you know, we part of the deal with watching cinema is that we agree to this fiction, we agree to this artifice. 
Well, it's funny. I mean, if you think about theatre, you know, it's not like we're against the idea of going to a theatre and saying, like, we know that those are people on board, on a, on a stage, on a little wooden stage in front of us, who are pretending, who are hitting their marks, who are going off, and we're very aware of the artifice of it, but there's something about cinema that kind of, while it starts off yes. very much in basically being film theatre, mm. when it's at its best, it's doing something else that is crafting another world. And yeah. when we go back to something that, that that's far earlier, we we don't feel comfortable that's, at all. That's the power of cinema, though. I mean, as as somebody whose uh, specialism is the historical epic, um, you can imagine I come across this quite a lot. You know, there are people who genuinely watch Braveheart and think that's what happened. Um, you want to see the historians hand wringing over this. Now, the, the the historians who engage with film tend to be a bit more philosophical about it and say, well, there's no such thing as true representation. But even the practice of writing history is the practice of narrativizing something that's not narrative. Uh. There is no such, oh gosh, we're gonna get very metaphysical here. <laughs> there is no such thing as, as objective reality when it comes to the stories we tell ourselves. Everything is mediated in some way by somebody's ideological concern. You, you can't have just a, a story that says this is what it is memory is fallible human storytelling turns something that is not narrative into narrative which mm. means manipulating it in some way we have worldview that we bring to things we have um, experiences that we bring to things so there is no such thing as objective reality we start putting it that way sitting down in the theater is a bit of a weird thing to do isn't it's it it's completely weird <laughs> it's totally bizarre it's, it's where do we get that idea from what know. a strange species we are i, I, I guess it's the, i mean i think it's a practicality the only way that we could watch these thing, these light projections, was to have a darkened room to do it in. Yeah. Um, oh, we're getting a bit Plato's cave here. Aren't but it, well, it's also sensory deprivation. You know, we are we are kind of deprived of any other external stimuli, and as a result of that, we are then immersed in the film, which I think is where Legete works. If you watch that in the proper context of a sort of cinematic. Oh environment, God, yeah, that's how I saw it the first time. You, you do start to forget about all those other things. So, when if you're listening to this at home and you've never seen it, and you decide to download Legete from somewhere do tonight. Do it. Do it. Do it. You'll love it. Turn the lights off. Just, just actually try and immerse yourself in that film and after a while you will gradually become accustomed to it and you will get soaked up by it. One of the things I do want to hit on, and I mean this is a particularly highbrow episode for us Ooh. because we always try... We see, do ben, try not to be... We want to see what we've got coming up, guys, okay? Highbrow isn't even in it. Ben's not here. This is what the problem yeah, is. Yeah, no I Ben's know. Ben, ben can't bring us back down to earth. We get to really just indulge ourselves now. So um, one of the things I want to hit on, and I think this film does bring up, is is, is Roland Barthes' um, theory of, of studium and punctum. Oh, yes. Uh, from Camera Lucida, which actually is like 20 years after this. But um, Punctum? Is that a particularly significant <laughs> phrase for us? It might be. No one's ever actually <laughs> asked us. No one's ever this. asked us why we're called Cinepunk. So that, 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 let me just explain Cinepunk. Punctum. If you've never heard of this, the, the, this sounds like really, really alienating things uh, and far more complex than it actually is. To be fair, Roland Bart is a bit alienating. Cinepunk. So Punctum it's, it, he has, has these two ideas uh, in terms of photography. And as this is a film that's basically... All about photography, you know, it's, it seems rather appropriate. So, uh, Sudium is basically the cultural, the linguistic, the political interpretations within the photography itself. So, all those are little things that we bring into now. Punctum uh, is is the wounding, personal, touching detail um, that establishes the relationship between us and the image itself. So, if you think about the image um, that he's obsessed with, this image of the girl, um, and uh, the the fact that he sees somebody killed uh, on this jetty. For him, the personal relationship, the punctum, is, is the look of the girl. It's, it's the catching her eyes, which we see in a shot. And that's that little personal detail that, that attracts him to her. It's that little tiny detail that, that creates a relationship um, and ultimately establishes the link as opposed to everything else that goes around. So most of the time when we're watching a film, we'll talk about, you know, the meaning of it. We'll talk about the, the you know, the cultural influences. We'll talk about the choice of music and stuff that's perhaps being played. Um, but the thing that actually makes us give a shit about a film 
is a tiny tiny detail and obviously it, it can change between person to person if there's something about that that connects and resonates with you that doesn't connect with someone else that doesn't matter it's the thing that, that does work for you that is the punctum for me it's a sequence where they're in the the hall with the stuffed animals and she has one arm up pushing her hair away from her neck and he's mm. just he's just staring at her with this reverence in his eyes there's something so very very hauntingly beautiful about that particularly in the context of this film where you 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 know that that you know the world is going to go to shit you know this is a, this is an isolated moment in time and the fact that it's a, a series of still images mm. really hammers home this idea of isolated moments in time of paralysis in time now i'm not the bart scholar between the two of us so i'm not <laughs> even, i'm not even going to attempt to to try and talk coherently about bart but bart i know to completely bastardize mm. um to completely bastardize a guy who is to be fair to me, quite difficult to penetrate. Incredible. Um, but he talks about the fact that, that the horror of photographs really is that, you know, that's it, they, they freeze something in time in the way that death freezes something in time. A photograph of a corpse mm. and a photograph of a living being will look virtually the same but but so i mean there's there's just this which this film very definitely does i mean we see the living and the dead in exactly the same way Absolutely. and i mean that that scene that you happen to pick out now I, I personally i find that moment where you see her neck exposed deeply erotic um you know that that's Fair a very enough. it's a very sensitive kind of point and that's one of those things like the kissing in the back of the neck is what mm. my mind goes to and that's something that's a tender intimate moment and this is before their relationship is, is is very obviously just before just before just after the relationship is consummated but that's it's at the that, last time they see each other so it's Oh, spoiler alert. So it is just around this kind of moment of, of consummation. So I think it is deliberately erotic and tender. But there is also this thing, you know, having picked up on this life and death, they are at that point in the Museum of the Dead. Yeah. They're in a natural history museum. They are looking at corpses, living things that have been frozen in time. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially, this is an archive. This is a, this yeah. is a film... Because it's a series of a series of still images that makes up this film, this is essentially a film of archive that is then presenting us with an archive, an archive of animals presented yeah. within an archival context. And to get really metaphysical mm. and a bit of a spoiler alert here, in that moment, they are also both alive and dead at the same time. Ooh. This is you the problem know, with time travel, though, isn't it? Time travel. They are both. They are simultaneously alive, alive and, and dead, dead. Both of them at that moment in time. Do you know if you watch the very last, if you watch uh, Game of Thrones in the very last episode of season six, I am both alive and dead by the end of that episode. <laughs> yeah, I know, but but you're in basically every single episode of Game of Thrones. No, no, I only did like five, six, uh, but yeah, I just think I, I, I have, I've fun. had that experience of being alive and dead. It's, it's a lot of fun to watch Game of Thrones and go Robert J. E. Simpson spotting. Uh, you've done that, have you? Yeah. Oh, there's Robert. No, but I, I only raise that. I raised that because I have a personal experience of being alive and dead at the yeah. same time. Schrodinger's Robert. Schrodinger's Robert. Am I alive or dead? Mm -hmm. Is this podcast living or dead? I, I don't know. I, but but I think that that kind of there is an interesting thing about that, and there's this weird thing about photography that and about film actually the way that it you know essentially we spend our time watching things that have happened ten, fifteen, twenty, a hundred years ago yeah. as if they're happening right now. Yep. And our sense of perception and our sense of memory and reality gets completely distorted if you immerse yourself in this stuff. As far as I'm concerned, Gene Kelly is still dancing in the rain. Yeah, and it's it's a funny thing, you know, when you watch a film where featuring a young child, for mm. example, and then you realise that that young child is now older than my mother. <laughs> it's it's a very very. I mean, it's it is that act of freezing something in time and again you know this is 
some and I'm sure this is something that Marker is trying to get at with this film. I mean, he's an, he's he's such an intelligent, articulate, interested, interrogative filmmaker mm. that this this idea that film itself is about freezing something in time, it's about creating a kind of a time loop. Yeah. That you know, this this film is completely different from the other types of film he makes he's a film essayist he doesn't do uh, science fiction he doesn't do fiction for the most part so why this story mm. at this time he's he's got to be talking about this idea that film is in itself freeze it's about freezing a moment in time it's about freezing a series of moments in time it's about the image it's about fixing an image and it's about creating a loop if it wasn't for the narrative that we have uh, on screen, and, and you can you can actually download this and read it as well, it, it works perfectly well as a piece of written prose. Yeah. That prose influences very much how we view the images. Otherwise, they are a series of images that sort of might make sense, but they kind of don't, um, because they are images. They they are stills, and you can rearrange those. And you can create all kinds of, of, oh, yeah. of stories with them, mm -hmm. which is essentially what filmmaking is. You mm -hmm. take a bunch of images from, you shouldn't, you don't shoot things in, in, in sequence, but you then create a, a narrative from it. Mm -hmm. And that narrative influences the way that we then interpret this. I mean, yeah. you could put another commentary in this film and be yeah. something completely different. Yeah, it brings us back to this idea of continuity editing. I mean, I was just talking to a bunch of guys about continuity editing yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, and this sense that we have that continuity editing is something natural or innate. Um, and then I show them 1903, Edwin S. Porter, The mm -hmm. Life of an American Fireman, which predates, but only slightly, but it predates the development of Hollywood continuity editing. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't exist in that film. It presents one sequence from inside the house and it presents the same sequence from outside of the house. Yeah. Two separate scenes, both talking about the same thing because this idea that continuity editing is something that we just know how to do is is a, a, a modern invention. Well, I mean, we we may live our lives in a, continu in a continuous way, um, but our memories don't work that way. No, you know, exactly. we, we, we flit as this conversation does, you know, between thought, between thought, between thought. And if we were to have a, you know, an hour long, chat in the pub um you know we're going to start flitting between all sorts of things as, as the memories provoke other thoughts and the wine makes us more intelligent sometimes um, i have a sweet spot with wine but but definitely i think you know marker is, is is allowing us to do something that's this is probably more authentic in terms of how our brains work than most cinema is goddard goddard kind of gets it almost but you know, I, I think it's more style over substance. This actually has a bit of substance to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, and not just because I have limited patience for Godard. Um, I hope that has given you some kind of taste of, of Legette. I, I realise this is a little bit more kind of cerebral than we sometimes do. Um, we're indulging ourselves, really. <laughs> we both love this film. And, and you know, we, we went to uni for a long time for a reason. We did, yes. We don't use it very often. We, were both, we both met Legette in uni at impressionable ages. Um, but yeah, so we're going to do uh, we're going to do a few more of these um, throughout the series uh, alongside our regular podcasts and uh, some of our live recordings as well. So do stick with us. Um, you can always, if you don't enjoy it, skip the next one. Um, we've got something, uh, you know, there's always something good around the corner. Um, for now, however, uh, go and download La Jete, And if you haven't watched La Jete, do. And if you enjoy La Jete a lot, go and watch 12 Monkeys, both the TV series and the film. Um, for now, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Kelly. Thank you very much. And um, I will we'll see you again very, very soon.